This is the Bob Olin Show on KDAL. All right, here we go. The uh, Today's edition of the Bob Olin Show. Bob has got all the answers when it comes to gardening questions uh, right here on KDAL. And Bob, I guess we could start getting ready for spring of 2024 20, uh, since we're not going to have a spring this year. <laughs> oh, I hope that's not the case. <laughs> you know, we're going to have a spring. Uh, these kind of years, it seems like it might be a week long, and then we suddenly launch into summer. <laughs> but we are going to see. It is a glorious day today. That was an interesting forecast. Um, are you following the snowfall accumulation, Dave? Yeah, it's going to be. Uh, the record? We're just a couple of tenths of an inch away from the record now, so. We are expecting snow again Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, so we're bound to get at least a couple tenths of an inch and probably beat the record. Yeah, that's going to be interesting. I guess I'd never uh, wish for a little bit of snow this late in the season, (laughs) but we may as well set a record after what we endured this winter. (laughs) I suppose. As long as we're this close, let's go for it. We may as well go for it. Uh, Very bright morning, lots of sunshine. Mm -hmm. Of course, with the sun this high in the sky, uh, we all know the snow can't last long, and then things are going to green up very, very quickly. You know, we are looking forward to a good season coming up here. We had a tremendous activity on the weekend. Uh, you know, we did our spring gardening extravaganza. Mm-hmm. And maybe it's the long winter. Maybe it's just uh, the nature of the program. But, boy, people were out. We had uh, more than twice as many people as what we anticipated. We had wow. 238 people that were in attendance, and it was just a very, very great day. Fascinating. You know, I have a lot of fun putting these things together because I like to um, work with some true professionals and uh, uh, glean a little bit of information from their insights. So we were talking about cottage gardens and uh, kind of an interesting idea. I think, uh, you know, I think we're the first people to bring this concept this far north. It's something that I think is rippling throughout the country. At least that's kind of the sense that I get. There is this Netflix series out there, the Bridgertons, which took place in the early 1800s. Uh, and, um, you know, throw, a throwback to this cottage garden design concept. And as I thought about this, and of course I put the th- these things together in December and January, the theme I'm going to try to work with over this uh, period of time. But um, the cottage garden concept seems to fit so beautifully with so many of our uh, environmental trends that we have, the desire to really put together pollinator gardens, the desire to minimize the amount of uh, lawn just for lawn's sake and looking at uh, a very diverse and very minimal maintenance type of a landscape. And all these concepts, as I was looking at what really occurred back in the 1800s for different reasons, kind of fit so nicely with where I think uh, most people are at today. So the cottage garden uh, took place in, as I mentioned, in the 1800s, and it was really a time when, back in England, where, you know, everything was kind of feudal, and they had these uh, uh, castles that were out there, usually mounted high on the hill, and uh, the um, lord of that particular district had a number of serfs, and I think of how fortunate we really are, because most people were in that category of being a serf, and as... uh, as this began to evolve, uh, most of these cottages were really uh, occupied by farm workers, and they were given this as a place to live and maybe an acre of land. And it was very interesting. Uh, potatoes, which is a great crop, we're talking Irish, Irish potatoes now, uh, they were uh, just a mainstay. And, of course, if we've got any of the old 
homesteaders from the area, or if they know their parents or grandparents, talked about the fact that many of the people that uh, actually uh, founded this area on some of the small farms, uh, potatoes were a mainstay, potatoes, cabbage, and maybe uh, a dairy cow for some of the milk. And actually, surprisingly, it's all unprocessed food, and uh, they lived long, healthy lives. I don't think they were easy lives when I look at how difficult it is to farm in this area, but nonetheless, uh, uh, they did love, and many of them, uh, so very, very long and, and were very healthy in the process. And it was very interesting because the cottage garden did start off as a really a food garden, and uh, they had to sustain themselves, so they had most of their acre that they were given in terms of land was really dedicated to uh, food production for their own consumption. I mentioned cabbage and and. Uh, potatoes being primary crops there, potato in particular, which has some protein. People always ask, well, what can I, where can I get protein out of the, the vegetables I consume? And uh, potatoes have about 5% protein, not a lot, but it does still supply some. And um, then this very gradually, as the times improved, it began to morph. The flowers were just kind of fillers around the edge initially. And then it began to kind of this transition toward an ornamental garden with some fruit trees, still with the edibles, still with the herbs. That was all part of it. But it began to transition more and more and more into uh, an ornamental garden where we really looked at flowering perennials. Uh, we looked at some annuals that would fill in space. Uh, once again, very minimal amount of actual turf. Every bit of space was dedicated to either the beauty of flowers or the production of food. And, uh, you know, they would use every bit of space, so they really didn't have these real formal gardens. There weren't a lot of, these were farm workers, and they were, they didn't have their gardeners to take care of everything. So the aristocrats at the time had the very, very formal gardens, everything neat in a row, everything pruned. And then the, the working class had these kind of informal gardens, which had, took on their own very unique uh, style. Uh, they were really... Uh, informal. They they filled in the areas. The gardens went right up to the walkways, went right up to the buildings. So there wasn't any formality. It was, But nonetheless, there was design that occurred, and there was a lot of color that occurred. So this whole concept, I thought, fits so beautifully with where we're at today, where we can, we can actually take a piece of ground, maybe it's your front yard, and dedicate it as a pollinator garden, fill it with perennials that you know are going to fill in, perennials that are going to be minimal maintenance they don't require a lot of fertility so you don't have to uh, utilize a lot of synthetic fertilizer to maintain them uh, they're minimal maintenance there's no such thing as a maintenance free garden but the perennials from time to time you're going to have to move and you're going to have to divide but nonetheless it's not like trying to keep uh, an annual plot weed free on a continual basis many of these perennials don't require a lot of additional moisture so Inputs, water, and fertility are really very, very low. Obviously, the farm workers back in the 1800s really didn't have either. Uh, they had to have water available, but water came from a very limited well and well supply, so they didn't have irrigation systems out there. Uh, these plants really had to pretty much survive on their own. So I thought uh, it's really, really a nice concept to look at and to consider, and we can explore different segments. Once again, there was the herb garden. There was the the vegetable garden, there was a fruit garden there, and then there were all of these ornamentals. Fit very nicely, I think. We had tremendous speakers that uh, filled in all of these niches for us, and maybe we can share some of the ideas. I know I learned a lot from them. We had a great wow. time at that time, Dave. First off, let's uh, get a question quickly this morning. Hi, who's this? Uh, Dean from Duluth. Go ahead, Dean. Good morning, uh, Dean. Bob, good morning. Thank you for taking my question. Uh, 
got a river birch, four trunks, uh, got some snow load on the lowest branches. It's kind of pulled the branch away from the trunk, actually opened it up and done some damage. I know I'm not supposed to trim birch until July, August, but it is damaged at this point, and, and the, the the branches are probably as big as your finger. Uh, should I let that go until July, August, or can I do something now? And I'm worried about it weeping, obviously. Yeah, you're going to lose some sap in the process, but you're looking at branches that are uh, relatively small in diameter. You've got this open wound there, and, and as I mentioned before, Anytime we have an open wound, we have access to moisture. We're obviously in that cycle where we're getting a lot of moisture. That water gets in there. It gets into the heartwood of the tree. The only protection the tree has is really that outside bark. Once we break into that hardwood area, then we can get rot that will work its way well into the core of the, of the tree and, uh, and can ultimately uh, weaken it or kill it. So I think I would uh, go ahead, and this would be a good time to prune it up. You're going to get some bleeding, obviously, but if you're careful the way you prune, uh, the tree will, will overcome that unless you're taking off huge amounts of the material, and that would be kind of damaging because we really want to get these leaves out there because that's where the repair function is going to come from. So I would say I'd go ahead and prune this a great time. Uh, very early before the buds have, have broken, and uh, be a little careful again when you're making your cuts. We want to tear that bark. We want a nice smooth cut. Uh, we don't. Uh, we we want maybe an eighth of an inch beyond uh, flush. So we don't want to. There's what we call a meristematic tissue layer there. This these are the layers of cells that divide and will ultimately heal that up. So as you're taking your cuts, no tears. Nice sharp saw pruning. Uh, uh, pruning uh, shears, and uh, a nice smooth cut where the water will roll off. You really don't need pruning paints. You don't need any kind of paint in particular, but what you need is a, a smooth surface there without any pockets where water can collect. Does that help at all, Dean? It it does, and thank you very much. And uh, these are the lowest branches, and I will get at them. There are not very many, four or five, uh, but the, unfortunately it's all in one trunk, but I will do just as you suggested. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's a great question. You know, we've had so much winter damage that I think that December, you know, when I put together the weather statistics, we got the coldest temperatures and we got the uh, the most snow in two months, and it was it was December and then followed up with March. The other months have been just about average. We don't know what we got coming up here for April, but that first very, very heavy snow in uh, December uh, created a lot of damage and then followed up what wasn't damaged in December was damaged by the heavy snow loads in March. So we're going to be doing a lot of cleaning up. As people take a look at the trees and the landscapes, you, you know, we've got saturated soils. Got a little more snow coming, and things are going to melt in a hurry. But uh, we don't want too much compaction out there. You want to clean up a lot of the litter. But if you have to do some of these repair functions, uh, just as Dean's situation there, open areas where we've got access to water that can get into the interior, the core, the main main stem of the the tree or shrub, uh, we want to clean those areas up so we don't have moisture accumulating that can lead to rot that you can't get out of there, Dave. So very right. good question from yeah. Dean. A lot of us are going to be doing that very thing. Cleaning up before you worry about the lawn. <laughs> oh, there's going to be uh, snow mold out there. We know that this year. Uh, that is minimally uh, 
uh, destructive to the lawn over time. It's it's a rather benign fungi. It looks very loud, ugly early. Let's not worry about that. Let's let uh, things dry down. Let's work at repairing the damage and doing some of this early season pruning before we break bud. All right. We'll take a break, Bob, and break back. More of the Bob Olin Show here on KDAO. And we're back. More of the Bob Olin Show. Again, a reminder, if you've got questions for Bob, might want to get them in early today. Bob has got other commitments and may have to leave a little early, so get those questions in now. You know, it's always fun. I mentioned the uh, the workshop we did on the weekend, and what I really like, I, I learned plenty from the people I work with. This this whole learning process is very exciting. There are a lot of trends that are changing, and I did one segment. You know, we're all well aware there's plenty of inflation out there. It hasn't gone away yet. And, uh, you know, there are essentials in life, uh, certainly like uh, the food that you're going to need to sustain yourself. Uh, but I did ask my audience. I had about 65 people in this particular session, and I said, uh, why is it we're out there? This was just on vegetable gardening. It was about uh, how to fill your pantry, maybe the economics of a of a backyard vegetable garden. I asked them, what's your motivation for uh, for growing vegetables, and you know the the motivation still is not the high price of food, but it's more food security, and that's the first thing that came up. People said, "I know where my food's coming from," and of course we've got all of these food-borne uh, illness issues that are in the news all the time, and hopefully none of our listeners actually encountered any of those problems firsthand. But uh, food security was the biggest issue. Economics still a little farther down the line, hmm. but nonetheless, uh, we did have people that uh, thought uh, maybe it's time to really take a look at um, what we can save with a vegetable garden. Now, I hear the comment all the time: people have a lot of inputs. They're going to vegetable garden. They're going to feed the family. They're going to save a lot of money, etc., etc., etc. And then they find out that, uh, well, seeds a little expensive, and maybe their water bill goes up, and there's some fertility involved there, and there's some tilling and. And uh, people that are really careful or are not careful about the input side, the cost side, uh, find that uh, what they get at the other end, that they don't harvest maybe efficiently or or on time, and maybe they don't do any food preservation, uh, they find that maybe that vegetable garden costs them more than they ever imagined in the first place. So I think people, you know, part of this uh, forward-thinking design process and uh I'll tell you, I do a lot of uh, just-in-time stuff in my own life because I have a very diverse and very busy life. But I, I think just taking a step back and doing a little planning. So I, I walk folks through, let's let's take a look, and as long as we're going to be out there with a vegetable garden, uh, let's do a couple things. Let's try to make it economically positive, and then uh, let's try to make it very nutritious and high quality so we can gain all of these things, and in the process, benefit from the successful feeling we have by by doing a real good and efficient job out there. So we're going to take a little look at uh, a few basic things. We're going to take a look at the site. If we're growing vegetables, we need full sun. So think about that. We're going to we're going to look at drainage. Uh, we can't grow and we're not growing swamp crops here. So if you've got a real issue with drainage, particularly as they work our way through the season, we've got to amend that soil or we have to raise it up. We might even think about raised beds for this purpose if you really have heavy, wet clays. Uh, let's think a little bit about uh, the water supply and availability. Now, there's going to be plenty of moisture early, but we will dry down at some point. You know, I found this to be really fascinating when we went back to the cottage gardens that uh, water was a real cherished commodity. You know, England's got all kinds of rain, of course, but you have to have it on a consistent basis so a well became extremely valuable uh, part of your 
cottage garden. And they didn't have uh, any type of a pump system so other than a hand pump, and they didn't have any kind of irrigation. But we, what we know in growing things and growing them officially, and this has come to me just recently, is uh, we really, all of our nutrition comes to the plant in soluble form. In other words, it has to come up through the roots, and it has to be soluble. So we'll let things like blossom end rot, which is really a calcium deficiency at the far end, the blossom end of tomatoes as an example, but it also impacts uh, zucchini on a regular basis, tomatoes on a regular basis. And we saw two years ago when it was hot and dry, we saw this impact our pepper crop on a regular basis where we really don't have a steady supply of moisture that conducts nutrients out to the far end of the fruit and then the tissue just decays. It's not a disease, it's what we call a physiological disorder, it's tissue decay that's come from calcium deficiency. Now, if you're in a container with a potting soil mix, you may not have calcium in your soil mix. If you're out in a native soil, a mineral soil, there's plenty of calcium, but if our moisture is not delivered in a real efficient and continuous manner, Anytime that plant dries down, we don't get this flow of moisture, we don't get calcium that may be there in the soil, but it's not being carried forward. So I think water, water availability, you never want to let the plant go dry. If you're overhead watering, we never want to come over the top when the plant tissue stays moist, so we want to water early in the morning. And then uh, you might consider, again, some of the trickle ooze tube systems where we can deliver water on a very consistent basis. Seems kind of funny. we got saturated soils now, but we all know what happens when we get into late June or July. Things dry down, and that's really when the fruit is setting, and you want to be very conscious of supplying the moisture that the plant needs to finish that fruit off and give you the real high-quality yield that you're looking for, Dave. All right, Bob, let's head to the phone. Hi, who's this? Bruce on the North Shore. Go ahead, Bruce. Hey, Hey, how are you Bruce, doing? It's really good. To, oh, we're doing great, Bruce. Uh, really, really it's nice good. to hear from you. And how are good you doing? Good to hear your voice. Sure. <laughs> you know, uh, of... we're waiting. We're waiting for the snow to melt. <laughs> You're waiting. <laughs> we melted it on some places on our hillsides, but certainly in the woods or when you have that lake effect, there's still plenty of snow on the ground, isn't yeah. there? Yeah. We got hammered with a lot of snow, and the snow. It's mostly the snow banks along the drive. My question is, what's the big deal about creeping Charlie? I have a lawn around our house. It's small because we're out in the woods, but what does it even look like? Oh, you're not familiar with creeping Charlie? Well, I I think I am, but I want to confirm it with the pro. Well, here's the thing. If you're not familiar with it, count your blessings. (laughs) <laughs> because uh, the, the difficult <laughs> it's a broadleaf, it's a very aggressive weed, it, it grows and outcompetes grass. And some people will say, what's the big deal? Uh, well, you have to feel comfortable with it uh, because it will t- it can take over everything. It, uh, it reproduces by both stem tissue, uh, in other words, rhizomes that are and stolons that are walking along the surface and by seed. So it's very aggressive, and it will crowd out uh, grass. It has a it has a very distinctive uh, blue purple flower. The problem is, it's okay. not, in, not, but it's not useful for the pollinators. That's the problem with this. It uh, it doesn't oh, have to okay. that way. You know, I'm a beekeeper. No. I know you are, and so you're looking at all those beautiful lavender flowers, and they're not doing your bees any good. <laughs> so what we do? 
That's what we really want is we want some an else like clover in there or something a, a low stature clover that sets those blooms below your mow height. You know, you can't have one of the big tall purple clovers because you'll just mow all those flowers off. But you want something in that mix, in that bee friendly moss or bee friendly lawn mix. Uh, where the flower head of the clover sets up tight on very short stems, so you don't mow them off, so your bees can really take advantage of it. So I guess okay. that's it. Uh, does that help at all, Bruce? Heck yeah, because, you know, believe it or not, I'm on my way to Dan's right now. Mm. So <laughs> what a coincidence. Well, great. Well, what, ask, what, ask what kind of clover, what kind of seed should I pick? What kind Let's of seed should I pick up? Dan may actually have uh, some kind of a uh, bee-friendly lawn mix. I'm not sure what he has in the inventory right now. They're becoming more popular, but you definitely want to get uh, uh, some of the alcite clover in that mix. And you know the nice thing about the clovers? These are legumes that fix nitrogen out of the air. So once again, we're going back to this sustainable system here where the nitrogen that are coming out of a bag and a, and a, a chemical plant uh, comes from the legumes that set it naturally the way uh, nature really in, intended. So getting some clover into the mix. If um, if you've got a lot of creeping charlie, we oftentimes have to remove it uh, with some kind of a broadleaf weed, weed control. Much more effective, easy to do in the early fall than it is right now. But uh, you ultimately may also have to prune some trees, get a little more sunlight because our clovers and our grasses have to be able to outcompete the creeping charlie, and they all require sure. a little bit more nitrogen. They require a little bit more sunlight and good drainage. Creeping charlie has its advantages because it will grow under very challenging conditions. It also will pop out very early. So if you see broadleafs in that lawn, as soon as the snow melts, take a close look. It's got kind of a uh, undulated uh a curved leaf to it, and uh, chances are that may be your creeping charlie that's emerging early. So it gets out to an early start, it gets established early, and then the grass and the clover has a difficult time competing. Just a few thoughts for you there, Bruce. Hey, All right. Thank Thanks, you for the Doc. call, Bruce. All right. We're at 943 at uh, KDAL, and we'll be right back. And we're back, Bob Olin Show, on uh, Tuesday, the... 18th of April already. Uh, Bob, I know you got to cut it short today, so I'll get you wrap it up here if you like. I will do that. I will just encourage people. we got a little more, more snow. We may as well go set that record as long as, long as we've come this close. Uh, let's do that. It'll be a memorable year, and then let's get on with spring. And uh, may we also be blessed with the uh, green of spring very soon in all of our landscape. Got more to talk with you. I do have to leave you a little early today, but... Uh, uh, I learned so much from the people we interacted with on the weekend, and I want to share you some of the thoughts about where cauliflower is at and why it suddenly becomes so ah. popular and how how versatile it is. And all kinds of people shared recipes. They're making chicken out of it. They're making pizza <laughs> crust out of it. They're making chicken wings out of it. Uh, I don't think they can make the pepperoni. But nonetheless, uh, this was all a revelation to me. And a couple of these folks said it's all coming in from California. It's my daughter that lives there that's sending me these recipes. <laughs> we could grow cauliflower great up here in the Northland. So I think it's a crop where we are all going to have to take a little closer look at because it's very fashionable, very popular right now. That's for another program, all Dave. Right. I appreciate all our callers. It's nice to hear from folks. Enjoy this last little bit of winter, and then on into spring. All right. Thanks, Bob. We'll look forward to the uh, cauliflower show next Tuesday here on KDAO. 
The Bob Olin Show has been brought to you by Dan's Garden Center, located inside Dan's Feed Bin on Hammond Avenue in Superior, and by Matilda's Dog Bakery and Pet Nutrition Center in Lakeside across from the Lake Walk. News, weather, sports, 610 and FM 103.9 KDAL.